Good morning. Uh, my name is Jason Tyrell. I'm one of the elders here at Joy. It's good to be with you this morning. Good to be worshiping with you this morning. Uh, one year ago, next weekend, we began a series through the book of Acts. Um, now, you may have a bulletin in front of you that says this is the 21st sermon in a series through the book of Acts. And you think to yourself, there are a lot more weeks in one year than, than 21. Uh, and that is true. We have taken a few extended detours this year. We've gone through Nehemiah. We've gone through some Psalms. We've done some standalones. Larry uh, did some sermons on his sabbatical. We did a couple around Christmas, a couple around Easter. Uh, but we are back. We are back in Acts now. And Lord willing, we plan to be in Acts for a good while. Uh, Acts is Luke's account of the spread of the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and even to the ends of the earth as they knew them then, Rome. The story of a carpenter from Nazareth who died 2,000 years ago continues to be told right here today. There's maybe something to that story. Through the first eight chapters of Acts, we saw the resurrected Jesus give His disciples instructions to wait in Jerusalem to be clothed with power from on high. He then ascended to heaven with the promise of returning again. On the day of Pentecost, the disciples who gathered waiting and in prayer were filled with the Holy Spirit and began boldly proclaiming the gospel to the Jewish people. Many among the Jewish people believed in the Lord Jesus for salvation. The early church was formed, and we read early in Acts that the church enjoyed blessing and favor with all the people. The healing work of the Holy Spirit was seen. People's care for one another in Christ. The proclamation of the gospel. The protection of the purity of the infant church. We saw all this in the first few chapters, and yet the church faced the same enemies that the Lord Jesus Himself faced. He told them it was going to happen. He told them that if, if they do this to me, they're going to do it to you. Though they enjoyed favor with all the people early on, it was not long before the Jewish religious leaders had stirred the people up again falsely accusing Stephen of blasphemy. And after he boldly stood up for the truth, they executed him without any further trial. This caused the scattering of many of the believers in Christ. They moved away from Jerusalem. We learned in chapter 8 that among those scattered believers was Philip who proclaimed the Gospel to the people of Samaria. And he proclaimed the Gospel to an Ethiopian eunuch. All the while, rising to prominence among the enemies of what was called the Way was a young man named Saul of Tarsus in Cilicia, about 600 miles by land from Jerusalem. Saul was a prominent Jew, he was a Pharisee, and he was a Roman citizen. People laid their cloaks at his approving feet as Stephen was stoned. We're told in, in chapter 8, verse 3, that Saul was ravaging the church, entering house after house, 
He dragged off men and women to prison. Saul saw this movement as heretical, blasphemous, and needing to be stomped out. He would go to whatever lengths he needed to in order to make sure that this movement ended. And chapter 9, where we're going to be today, verse 1 picks up as a continuation from chapter 8, verse 3. So if you have your Bibles, I would encourage you right now to open them up to Acts chapter 9. If you're using the Bibles that are in front of you, it's, it's page 917. And then just keep your finger in that spot. If there's something that Luke wanted to communicate at the end of chapter 7, at the beginning of chapter 8, and the beginning of chapter 9 of Acts, it is this. Saul of Tarsus hated the early church. And he wanted it silenced. What he didn't understand was that he actually hated God. That he was an opponent. He who thought he was standing up for God actually hated the God that he thought he was standing up for. All of this makes the very true story that we're about to read so amazing. Saul of Tarsus. I'm going to give you a little spoiler alert. Saul of Tarsus is going to be the primary instrument that God uses to get the gospel to the Gentile world. How's that possible? This, this is real historical accounting. This man... Saul of Tarsus. It's all right. Hey, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm technologically troubled myself, so that, that don't bother me. Uh, happens to the best of us. I would definitely be that person. I'd be like, oh, man, I don't know how to make this stop. Uh, so. Saul of Tarsus will be God's primary instrument in getting the gospel to the Gentile world. Man's plans cannot foil God's plans. Man's will is not stronger than God's will. Today we will see a man who set out to extinguish the church being miraculously converted and becoming the flame that burns brightest in bringing the message of Christ to the ends of the earth even though it's going to mean suffering for him. He who is trying to inflict suffering on the people who follow Christ will then be one who is willing to suffer for Christ. I would say this is one of the great apologetics of the truthfulness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That this man, Saul, who really existed in time, and there are real accounts of his efforts to put the church to silence. All of a sudden, was proclaiming the name of Jesus as Lord and Savior. That's an amazing thing. This morning, we're going to read Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through the beginning of verse 19. And I want us to just consider two things. The Lord's will prevails... Okay, that's number one. 
And the Lord saves and calls the most unlikely people. The Lord's will prevails and the Lord saves and calls the most unlikely people. It's vitally important for us as we read this passage to see God's big picture purposes, right? Saul will be my instrument. That's the big picture. I'm going to use this guy. But also what we can learn from that ourselves in our lives, and that is that God's sovereign purposes will prevail in our lives as well. And that he's merciful to the least deserving people in the world. And I'm just going to say this right now, and then I'm going to read. Sometimes I'll probably say the name Saul, and sometimes I'll probably say Paul. And you'll probably be like, you might be like, All right, who is he? Is he talking about two people? Was it Saul or Paul? Saul and Paul, both. One is his Jewish name. One is his Roman name. His name didn't actually get changed. He's called Saul throughout the book of Acts. But Paul is the name he's addressed by as he, as he writes or speaks with Roman or Gentile groups. So if I use both, talking about the same guy, not two different guys. But he is two different guys in this passage. So let's read. But Saul, still breathing out threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call upon your name. But the Lord said to him, Go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. This is the word of the Lord. 
Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, this is your word. Living and active, without error. May it be that in the next few minutes that I would proclaim from your word what is true and that our hearts would be prepared to receive from your word. Work in a mighty way in each of us. Uh, whether it is strengthening our faith and increasing our love for You and our submission to You, or if it is for the first time seeing with eyes of faith that Jesus is the Savior and believing. Would You do Your work among us this morning? And we thank You, Father, uh, that Your Word is being proclaimed not just uh, here at Joy Community Fellowship of Pittman, but in many uh, churches around the country and around the world. And Father, we pray for pastors who are seeking to truthfully represent you from your word, that you would bless and encourage their hearts and strengthen their proclamation and do mighty works, not just in this congregation, but in all congregations that seek to honor your name. And we thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. So Saul is, is breathing threats and murder against the disciples of Jesus. I don't think you need me to clarify much further. He's not just trying to, you know, all right, guys, come on, take it easy, tone it down. He, he hates these people. He hates this movement. He wants it done away with. It says in this passage, not only that he's breathing threats and murder, but for the second time in two chapters, it mentions that he's, he's dragging away men and women. And there, I think there's some significance to that. Um, th I think that he is trying to root out everyone. And he's trying to root out not just everyone, but make sure that nobody reproduces people who do this stuff. He is trying to get rid of all of the people that he would label apostates to the faith, heretics, blasphemers. He is trying to totally wipe this movement out. The fact that he's going to Damascus, which is about 135 miles away from Jerusalem, tells you that he probably has a plan not just to go to Damascus, but he'll start there and then he'll go other places. Just the success he had in scattering folks and scaring the church in Jerusalem He's going to keep going until he's put it away, till it's over. He's going to find where these people scattered to, and he's going to bring them to justice. He gets letters from the chief priest to go. And there was authority for those, especially for who, those who left Jerusalem to go to Damascus. The, the people, the chief priests, the leaders of Jerusalem, under Roman authority, they were given local authority to execute justice for their city. So if Saul showed up in Damascus and goes to their synagogues and says, I have a letter from the chief priest that I can gather up everybody who left Jerusalem and I can bring them back, they would let him go. They, they would let him arrest these people and bring them back. And I don't mean to belabor this point, but it's really important for us to see that Saul and the chief priests did not just want these Jewish believers in Christ out of Jerusalem. They wanted them gone. They, they either wanted them to recant their faith, 
say, no, I'm sorry, I, I was mistaken, I was following the wrong, I, I, I listened to the wrong stuff, I don't believe in any of that Jesus stuff, or they wanted them in prison or dead. All of them. So Saul's on the road to Damascus, apparently quite close to Damascus. He and his traveling companions, they see this bright light from heaven. Now, what time of day is it when they're traveling? Daytime, right? They don't travel at night. So we see a bright light. There is, believe it or not, every day there's a bright light that shines from heaven on us. Did you know that? It's called the sun. This light made the sun look like nothing. There's, there's no other explanation. There's a, a light so blinding, so glorious, that they were struck down by it. And encounters with the Lord throughout Scripture. Think about like Moses and the burning bush. Isaiah in the throne room of God. Jesus' transfiguration. Encounters with God are glorious and scary. If you were to encounter God right now, what do you think your reaction would be? On your face. Whether you walked in here saying you worship God or don't worship God, if He were to show up here today in all His glory, we'd be dead. Beholding the glory of God is a scary thought. We can just read through these. Uh, so, okay, uh, Saul, you know, they're on their way to Damascus. and Bright light. Well, they all fell down. Okay. It's easy for this, these kinds of things to become just common to us. This is an unbelievable thing that happened. And it did happen. Beholding the glory of God is a scary thought and even more scary when you find out as you behold His glory that you're His enemy. You haven't been on his side, actually. You've been against him. Surely Paul had this part of his life in mind when he said in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In 1 Timothy 6, 15, when he speaks of Jesus, He who is the blessed and only Sovereign, the King of kings, and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who, do you know what the next phrase is? He dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To Him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Saul falls to the ground, and he hears a voice. His companions hear the voice, but they can't make out the voice. That's, again, not uncommon in Scripture. We see multiple occasions where one person is being spoken to by the Lord and the, those around hear the voice but can't make out what's being said. Jesus says, what does He say to Saul? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my people? He says, why are you persecuting me? 
And I want to start by saying this. All the wrongs done to believers in Christ are ultimately done to Jesus Himself. Jesus does not say, why are you persecuting my followers? He says, why are you persecuting me? What you have done to the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you have done to me. Take heart. If standing up for Jesus means suffering in this life, He is not absent from that. Not, not only that, He says if it happens to my people, it has happened to me. And justice will be served. Those who are being persecuted around the globe right now, this very minute, Imprisoned for the name of Jesus. Tortured for the name of Jesus. Killed for the name of Jesus. Jesus will be with them and justice will be served one way or another. And so Jesus says to Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul doesn't even know who's talking to him, but he knows it's somebody more powerful than himself. He says, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Jesus tells Saul, get up. Go into the city and await instructions. Saul, you are not in charge of this situation. Right? First point here is, and by the way, the first point is way longer than the second point. The Lord's will prevails, right? Saul's going into Damascus for something. But God has a plan for something else. And he says, get up and get into Damascus and you wait till I tell you what's next. Saul, you're going to obey me from now on. Saul is struck blind, physically blind. But it's also a punishment that's fitting to describe his spiritual condition as he approached Damascus. The most religiously fervent person, but wrong, is blind. We probably know some religious people who are spiritually blind. There may be some in this room. So whether you are religiously fervent and wrong, an atheist, the most disgusting sinner, all are blind. Saul was raging against what he thought was wrong, and he was the one who was wrong. Wickedly wrong. All who set themselves up against the plans and purposes of God are wicked. Whatever it looks like. Everybody who sets themselves up against God is wicked. Blind. Under judgment. Saul was led by the hand by his companions. And as he waited for what was next, we, we learn in the, in the passage that he didn't eat. He didn't drink. Just stayed at the place where he was probably still in shock and horror at what had happened to him, in sadness over the fact that he couldn't see, literally. 
And in Damascus, at the same time, there was a disciple of Jesus named Ananias. Okay? First of all, that's amazing in and of itself. Just that part of the passage, right? There is in Damascus a disciple of Jesus named Ananias. Where did he come from? We see just with those words that the gospel had made it to Damascus. We knew that it had because Saul was going there to get some people back. But we are led to believe, I I believe it's not quite clear in the passage, but I would say it seems clear that Ananias was a resident of Damascus, not a guy who had fled from Jerusalem, that he lived in Damascus. So this convert named Ananias was in Damascus. And he also has an encounter with the Lord Jesus. Saul hears the voice of of Jesus and he says, Who are you, Lord? What does Ananias say when he hears the voice of Jesus? Here I am, Lord. Any good good Methodists in here? Song, or song 593 in the Methodist hymnal. <laughs> Here I am, Lord. Uh, sing that one a few times, Jeff, in your, your days. Nancy Michael, you out there? You know, you know hymn number 593 in the... Uh... It is a beautiful song. It is. Uh, no, I'm just saying. That's what Ananias says. Here, is it any of uh, No, not everybody here grew up Methodist. So... Uh, did you sing, Here I Am, Lord? Do you know that song? All right. Baptists sing it too. Okay, good. That's it. <laughs> Ananias hears the voice of Jesus and he says, Here I am, Lord. The Lord's servant is ready to hear his voice and serve. And what he hears from Jesus is astounding. You put yourself in Ananias' shoes, right? Okay? He already knew that Saul was coming, right? We get that in this passage. He knows that Saul's coming. He knows that Saul has the approval of the chief priests to gather up and bring back to Jerusalem. Ananias seems to believe, just we see here in like 914, that, that he has authority to get whatever Christians he wants and bring them back to Jerusalem. Right? It says in 914, here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. And then Jesus says something pretty amazing to him. Rise and go to the street called Straight. By the way, if you're ever visiting Syria, you can still go to this street. Still there. And at the house of Judas... Look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his vision. It's um, impossible. I would say Ananias shows a posture of servanthood, but at first at least expresses some level of concern, right? But Jesus reveals his will to Ananias. Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. 
Reminds me of the, the Lord's call upon Jeremiah. Before I knew you, I chose you. From the womb, I, I knew what the plans I had for Jeremiah were. But really, Saul? He's your chosen instrument, Lord? It's amazing. He's going to represent and suffer for Jesus just like he had made others who represent Jesus suffer. Ananias goes. We see in this passage both Saul and Ananias hear from Jesus and they obey. They do what he says. Because when the Lord intends to accomplish something, it gets done. Psalm 135, 6. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. If Saul is going to be the Lord's chosen instrument, then it's going to happen. If Ananias is going to be the means by which Saul's blindness is healed and his spiritual eyes are opened, then it's going to happen. No ifs, ands, or buts. No contingency plans. If the life of Saul is going to be used in part to get the gospel to the Gentile world, then it will happen. If the Lord says He will build His church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, guess what? It will happen. Whatever we're facing in our personal lives or as a society, and we think, I wonder... I wonder if the church is going to survive. Will there even be Christians around here in 20 years or 40 years? Well, I'll tell you this. We're 2,000 years in, and the gates of hell still have not prevailed against the church of Jesus Christ. Because when the Lord says something is going to happen, it happens. If he says that the proclamation of the gospel will open the eyes of the blind and save souls from perishing in hell, then it will happen. Do you believe that? So Ananias goes. Saul had been told of his coming while he prayed and their encounter begins with two words that are almost as startling as anything that's happened to this point. What are the first two words of this encounter? Brother Saul. And I don't think that Ananias just means Jewish brother Saul, like a fellow Jew of mine, Saul. This is much more affectionate. This is, the Lord has done something. And when I, what I knew of you, the only thing, we've never met, all I knew of you is you're coming here to arrest people and probably have us killed. But the Lord said something to me. And based on his testimony, I'm calling you Brother Saul. Saul is being or has been made into a new creation in Christ from Ananias' understanding that God the Father and the Lord Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit in their infinite and eternal wisdom and counsel had chosen this man 
to be the one who would travel the wonderful and painful path of faithfulness to Jesus through the spread of the gospel, even to the courts of Rome. Brother Saul, Jesus sent me here so that you might receive healing from your blindness and the filling of the Holy Spirit. Brother Saul, everything about your life is now different. You were running in one direction, and now the Lord Jesus has so graciously turned you around to run in the right direction. Skeptics say maybe Paul had a seizure or Paul was having hallucinations or Paul made this story up and got some others to go along with it. I think it's worth me taking a couple minutes to respond to that. Okay? I'll start with this. Everything about Saul's life changed from this moment on. He got this letter from the chief priest. He's headed to Damascus. And all of a sudden, I'm not want to give away next week's passage. He's going around telling people to believe in Jesus. Everything about his life changed from this moment forward. His purpose in life went from persecuting the name of Jesus under the pretense of keeping the Jewish faith pure to boldly proclaiming his name everywhere he went. He went from a position of prominence to a low position. He went from boasting in who he was before God to saying things like this. I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, that I, and I count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. That is a different person. He went from one whom others laid their coats at the feet of to one who would be considered the scum of the earth, the refuse of all things. And he did it for the one he formerly persecuted. This is either an unbelievably weird scam, right? So people who say like, yeah, Paul did this. He came up with this plan. He told this story. And he went from being rich to really poor and then ultimately dying for his faith. 
That is the strangest scam I've ever heard of in my life. It's like the reverse get rich scheme. Like, yeah, it's just all a big joke. I just wanted to be really poor and die. Uh, It's either a big scam or guess what? It happened. It happened. We believe that Jesus changed Saul. That the Holy Spirit transformed him into a new creation. Saul was baptized as believers in Christ ought to be. And he ate and his strength was restored. The Lord's will prevailed. He went to Damascus to arrest the believers and he left Damascus a believer. Which brings me to point number two, which is much, much shorter. The Lord saves and calls the most unlikely people. God is not a respecter of persons. God is not unable to save certain kinds of people. Saul stands as a witness to the big picture truth that God is going to accomplish His purposes and He will get the gospel to the ends of the earth. But he and Ananias also stand as witnesses to a couple other truths that we must consider briefly. Real quick. No one is so insignificant that God cannot use them and no one is so lost that Jesus cannot save them. I'll clap for that too, Essie. That's right. Amen. No one is so insignificant that God cannot use them. Again, this is not about us. Did Ananias, do you think he wrote right out his weekly planner earlier that week, right in his to-do list? Ben King told me to start using a to-do list. I and I do. I'm thankful for it. Ananias is writing out his weekly planner, and he said, you know, Thursday probably going to be laying hands on Saul. Uh, He did not have this in his agenda. And what do we know about Ananias after this? If you're thinking nothing, the answer is nothing. Paul mentions him one time in Acts chapter 22 as he testified in Jerusalem. But we know nothing about Ananias after this. The Scriptures are littered with characters who we know not much about before or after, but were used by God for His purposes. They're not the stars of the story. You probably have people that, as you read through Scripture, you're like, I wonder whatever happened to that guy or that lady. Do you ever have that? Whatever became of them? We don't know more of them because the vital story is not about them. But they remind us, they remind us who believe in the Lord Jesus that He uses and sees fit to use people who are seemingly insignificant to accomplish His purposes. Who are we to do anything of value for the Lord? And He certainly doesn't need us, right? But by His grace, He gives us daily purpose. In our homes, in our families, 
at our workplaces, at our schools. He calls us to regular faithfulness and empowers it by His Holy Spirit. He allows us, allows us to be a part of what He's doing in this world. Every day. By everyday faithfulness. By hearing, right? How do we hear the voice of the Lord? There's a whole bunch of His voice right here. His Word. And when I read in His Word that I'm supposed to love my neighbor as myself, I have an opportunity by His grace to respond just like Ananias did, right? Here I am, Lord. Use me however you see fit today. Not for my glory, not because of my greatness, for your glory. And if the story of the, the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ, there's not going to be a chapter where like, let's, let me tell you about what Jason did. It's his story. But he allows us to be a part of what he's doing. No one is no in, so insignificant that God cannot use them. Paul reminds the Corinthians of that, right? When he talks about the body of Christ. Many parts, one body, one head, Jesus Christ. Nobody can say, I, I'm useless or I'm the only one that's useful. We all need each other. No one is so insignificant that God cannot use them. And finally... No one is so lost that Jesus cannot save them. I, I would venture to tell you that Paul was driven by this truth. That no one is so lost that Jesus cannot save them. You know why he thought that? Because he thought that he was the worst person who ever lived. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Verse 12. I thank Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because He judged me faithful, appointing me to His service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But, if I, but I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost... Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who are to, to believe in Him for eternal life. To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul thought, if he could save me, if he didn't, if he didn't see fit to just let me keep running my hell-bound race, Turn me around. Who am I to look at and say, they couldn't be saved. They couldn't be rescued. 
brothers and sisters in Christ, why did the Lord save you? Was it because there was something amazing about you that he just couldn't live without? Or was it because he is rich in mercy to the undeserving? Paul says in Titus chapter 3, we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Everything we have is mercy and grace. We look at the life of Saul and say, Whoo, he was, he was wicked. And the Lord was so merciful. Well, we look at our own lives and say, I was every bit as undeserving. Every bit. And the Lord showed me mercy. And the Lord was gracious. We were dead in the sins and trespasses in which we once walked enemies of God, haters of God, but God who has every right to administer only justice, only justice to us, eternally administered justice and mercy at the cross of Jesus Christ. Our sin was so heinous that Jesus had to die for it. But God loves His people so much that He did. He did die. Paul knew it. And it shaped his ministry for the rest of his life. If this glorious Jesus forgave my sins and turned me around, then he could do that for anyone. No one that I can judge as unworthy or beyond hope as long as they have breath. God will do the calling and saving. That's his work and his business. All who have not put their faith in Jesus Christ are in the same boat as Saul was, present company included. Saul's wickedness was easily seen. Maybe yours comes under a better mask. Maybe you are a nice person, a hard worker, tolerant. You try to help others when you can, and yet the Word of God tells us that all who do not submit to the Lord Jesus are enemies of God. Saul did not think he was an enemy of God when he was on the road to Damascus. He was. We may not think of ourselves as enemies of God because we're nice. We try our best. We work hard. All who are not surrendered to Christ, all who are not trusting in Christ as Lord and Savior, He invites. Believe. Believe that my sacrifice has paid a penalty for your sins. And to the person who hears that and says, no, I'm fine because I'm nice and God is happy with me because I'm nice and I do good things. You're wrong. 
If you told Saul when he left Jerusalem that day, you're an, en- you're an enemy of God, you're not a friend of God, he would have said, you're wrong. I am, not, I am not an enemy of God. I represent God. He was wrong. But the Lord is gracious to bring us here, to hear. For the wrong, there is still time to turn and believe and find hope, forgiveness, know His saving love and come under His loving rule. Confess that you cannot make yourself clean but He can do it. Saul stands as a testimony that the Lord's sovereign will is going to be done and that the Lord is gracious and merciful even to the most wicked sinners. What a wonderful combination. Sovereign and merciful. Rejoice in that today. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for giving us Your Son for the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the hope that's found in Jesus Christ, even for the worst of the worst. Thank You for the example of Saul's conversion. Thank You for his ministry, empowered by You, and for the reminder that You save and You use the least deserving by Your grace and mercy and for Your glory. We sung it at the beginning, all glory is Yours in our salvation, in our works of faith, in all things, now and for all eternity. All glory is Yours, Lord. We thank You for Your sovereignty and we thank You for Your mercy. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.